Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. It's always uh, interesting and fun for me, and I hope it is uh, to our podcast listeners when we meet someone new, uh, someone who is so closely affiliated with Kentucky Humanities and has been for so many years. And uh, one of those uh, extraordinary individuals who's been in Kentucky uh, all of his life is James Claypool, a professor emeritus of history at Northern Kentucky University, uh, a Northern Kentucky University, uh, Park Hills, Kentucky uh, a resident and uh, still active in in so many ways, and uh, we're going to talk to him uh, about uh, some of the work that he does in our Speakers Bureau. But Jim, I just want to say to you, first of all, uh, great to have your acquaintance and great to meet you. And before we get into your uh, nuts and bolts of, uh, of what you do in your Speakers Bureau presentations, tell me a little bit about yourself uh, as a lifelong Kentuckian, and uh, let's uh, catch you up to date with people. Well, I just want to amend one thing there, Bill. I'm not quite a lifelong Kentuckian. I was born in Evansville, which was pretty oh. close to Kentucky, <laughs> and my father was a uh, publisher. He published a labor review newspaper for the AFL-CIO during the war, and uh, that's how eventually I got to Kentucky because they had three locations. They had Evansville, Cincinnati, and Cleveland, and uh, they cut it down into one unit in Cincinnati after the war. So in 1948, when I was uh, 10 years old, uh, we moved to uh, northern Kentucky. Could not find a house. That was the years when there was no housing. So I missed uh, a mar- large portion of my fourth grade uh, by missing school, frankly, and having no place to live. And I lived in the old Gibson Hotel in downtown Cincinnati. And my mother was from Missouri, so she sent me out to the hinterlands and said, take care of yourself, which I did. And ultimately, uh, we moved to Fort Mitchell. At the time, it wasn't Fort Mitchell. It was South Fort Mitchell. And uh, I enrolled in Beechwood High School, and that's where I continued to, until I graduated. And you were an athlete at Beechwood, correct? I was a multi-sport athlete. Uh, by far, my best sport was football. And uh, later, I played football at Center College. And uh, from Center, uh, graduating there, uh, and then went to the service. Yes. I graduated in 60, uh, in second in the men's division at Center. And uh, I thought I might be drafted, and I hadn't yet firmed up my plans about graduate school. So I enrolled in the uh, six-month program and I spent five and a half years in the reserves. And it was kind of funny because I went down to the National Guard Armory there in Danville, and they had an old regular Army sergeant, but Sergeant Lawson. And so I told him I wanted to sign up, and he started filling out the papers. And he said, now, uh, do you have at least an eighth grade education? I said, yes. And he said, well, I'll put down eighth grade. And I said, no. And he said, what, do you have high school? I said, yes. I said, I'll put high school. I said, no. He said, well, do you have technical school? And I said, no. And he said, well, what do you have? And I said, I just graduated from center. He said, you just graduated from center? We've never had anybody that graduated from center. I was going to give you a test, boy, but you just made 100. <laughs> what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> so that's how that worked. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, so uh, 
did your service, but you stayed in the, the guard, uh, you told me, uh, several years. Yes, yes, I did, and uh, moved around, actually. Uh, after I got out of the service, I went back to Cincinnati and got a job. I had to save some money to go to graduate school. And then uh, I was trained, actually, in artillery, but uh, uh, came down to Lexington, and they put me in a military police unit. And uh, it was the strangest unit you'll ever experience because all the prominent people from Lexington were involved in it one way or another. And one of the summer camps, we were down at Breckenridge in western Kentucky, and this general comes over to me and he said, can I talk to you? And I said, certainly, sir. And he said, this is the strangest unit I have ever encountered. And I said, how so? He said, well, first of all, you're, not, you're the only one not from Lexington. And I said, yes, sir. Okay. He said, can you explain to me why the officers take orders from the enlisted men in this unit? Because that's what's happening. And I said, yes, sir, I can. And he said, well, how is that? And I said, three letters. He said, what? And I said, I-B-M. I said, in real life, it's vice versa. Those people are managers that are giving those officers mm-hmm. commands. Mm-hmm. He understood that. Yeah. So uh, uh, at UK, uh, you uh, you got your graduate uh, degree, your master's, and your PhD. Is that correct? Yes, I did in European history. But I, I got another funny story. When I went down there, uh, I went to the graduate school, and Dr. Kerwin was there. Of course, he was teaching history as well as being the dean of the graduate school. And uh, he said, oh, you need to go over and see Tom Clark. And I said, Tom who? Because mm. I was a European historian. I really had very little interest in American history, so I sauntered over to the history building and thought I'd walk in and see Dr. Clark. Well, that taught me a lesson pretty quickly because I was about 58th in line at the end of the line, and I stayed there the entire day, well into the night. And uh, finally, I was the last one in, and Dr. Clark motioned me in, and he said, well, what's your name? And I told him, and he said, where'd you go to school? And I told him, and he said, well, he said, I'm sure you'll get along quite well here. He said, let me ask you this, what part of American history are you interested in? And I said, Dr. Clark, I'm not interested in American history. And he used an expletive and told me to get out and go find Dr. McCloy. Oh, I see. <laughs> but he and I became very, very close friends. Well, what a marvelous yeah. man he was yes. and uh, what a uh, historic figure. I I, uh, I don't think there's a many days that go by when uh, people like yourself or uh, interested parties, I was so fortunate to talk with him a few times uh, that uh, we don't wish that he was still around uh, to uh, uh, hear his wisdom and, and uh, uh, all of that he did for the state of Kentucky. So uh, European history, um, you went down to Murray for a few years, uh, Murray State University. Right. I went to Murray as an assistant professor there, and uh, I taught for three and a half years. And then uh, Frank Steely, who had hired me there, uh, knocked on my door at Christmas time uh, in 1969 and asked me to come up to Northern and be his advance man at Northern. And in essence, I was the college for about nine weeks before Frank got there. So, And then, and then he moved me into uh, not only uh, a professor of history, but also uh, the uh, dean of admissions and later dean of students as well. And uh, let me ask you this. Um, at, at NKU, when did you first meet uh, Governor Louis B. Nunn? And, and just give us a little brief uh, history lesson on uh, Governor Nunn's uh, participation in establishing NKU, or at least uh, looking at it from a growth standpoint. 
Right. Well, of course, Governor Nunn had done a very controversial thing. Uh, he had uh, instituted a sales tax that was five cents, so the critics always referred to Nunn's nickel. Nunn's nickel. Yeah, you can remember that quite well. But the thing about Governor Nunn was he was an unbelievably honorable person. He, he was really concerned about the welfare of both the Commonwealth and especially of Northern, and there was a reason for that. He had... Uh, carried northern Kentucky by about 16,000 votes. First time that had ever happened with a Republican. There was a change going on there. And he hoped that that change would continue and benefit the Republican Party. So he had aligned himself with Harold DeMarcus from London, Kentucky, who was the leader of the uh, uh, minority leader in the uh, Kentucky Senate. And uh, basically, they had gotten together and gotten together with a certain prominent people in northern Kentucky to put on paper the establishment of Northern Kentucky State College, though it was not funded. It was passed uh, in 1968, but not funded, and would not be funded until 1970, so that's the delay factor. But he was always concerned about the welfare of that school, and particularly so, he understood the politics of Kentucky quite well, and he said, never name anything there after me because we'll have Democratic governors and you'll pay a price for that. So uh, he was always very supportive. He helped us get uh, two buildings, including a sports arena, and uh, a very small sports arena, incidentally. And we uh, violated his trust because we named it Nun Hall and also a drive after him, and it never hurt us, really. Well, he was a, um, uh, he was a great governor that a lot of people um, don't know today. Um, uh, there are people who, like yourself, who, who remember uh, Governor Nunn. He was from my home county and um, uh, practiced uh, law in, in Glasgow. Uh, uh, I think uh, it needs to be uh, also said that he was largely responsible for Kentucky Educational Television. And uh, he and Lynn Press uh, worked uh, on it uh, together in the, in the early years. And I think uh, Governor Nunn and Governor Breathitt both uh, share some uh, uh, some responsibility for KET, uh, as the story goes. But he was um, he was early on a a supporter of public television in Kentucky. There is a little nugget of history that I will never forget. Of course, he was running against Henry Ward, a longtime Democratic politician who had some handicap uh, in public speaking. Usually his daughter did the public speaking. But Ward had this long list of accomplishments, various offices he had held, and they ran an ad in the Courier-Journal, and they showed a picture of Governor Nunn, a very darkened picture, a sinister-looking picture, and then a very bright picture of uh, Ward, and they listed Nunn's accomplishments as being Barron County Judge. <laughs> that, that was it. That was it. Yeah. 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 Well, we... Uh, it's uh, interesting to, to recall some of those early days. Well, Dr. Claypool, you, um, you could talk to us about many, many things. Uh, in your Speakers Bureau, you, you just told me that you probably are one of the, uh, the founding members of the Bureau, uh, dating back uh, many years uh, when Virginia Carter was here and, oh, yeah. and started uh, uh, so many programs at Kentucky Humanities. Um, but the one that I think that uh, just because it's... Um, it's May, and it's uh, racing uh, season uh, in Kentucky, and uh, the Derby, uh, uh, as we record this, I, I'm not exactly sure if it'll be uh, uh, before or after the Derby, but certainly during, uh, during the, the Churchill Downs meet. Um, your, your talk, uh, which uh, you've given many times, 
is uh, a celebration of Kentucky and its heritage, and that, that is the Kentucky Derby. So uh, why don't you uh, tell me about uh, what your knowledge uh, tells you. Even though you're a European historian, uh, you know a little bit about the Kentucky Derby. Well, I was uh, introduced to horse racing when I was eight years old. Uh, my father, as I said, was publishing a newspaper in Evansville, and of course, the nearby park at that time was called Dade Park. Of course, it's Ellis Park today. And my dad was uh, very bright. He understood uh, the possibilities of certain things. And one of the possibilities was if you had to buy your own food during the war years, you didn't get the best food. Mm. However, if you went over to the racetrack and were a member of the press, you got much better food. So we spent pretty near every day of the meat over there eating in the press room, which beat the sauerkraut and hot dogs that I was getting in grade school for sure. And that got me started. And of course, the, the same tale that so many people have told, that first bet I was allowed to make, I won. And it was a horse called Navy Boy, which that being the Warriors, that was automatic. And that was, from then on, horse racing was a passion of mine. Not so much the betting, but the cultural history, the scope, the tapestry of horse racing, and all the people that have been involved in it. And uh, the older I got, the more I learned. And eventually I got involved with uh, what was Latonia Racetrack. Uh, I helped lay the dirt down on Latonia Racetrack, and it later was renamed Turfway, of course. And it was uh, an extension of the earlier old Latonia. And being a historian, I took it upon myself to write the history of old Latonia, Latonia, and Turfway Racecourse. I called the book The Tradition Continues. And uh, that was really very frightening, Bill, because not being a person who had horses or a person who trained horses, to jump into that field with all the terminology and all the nuances and uh, the history there, uh, you took a real chance. And I, I did that with some trepidation, but it turned out all right. Tell us uh, a few of the stories that you uh, recite in your Speakers Bureau presentation uh, about the Kentucky Derby. I see I'm sitting across from you with your, your uh, silk uh, uh, jockey uh, tie on. Um, and, and that's always uh, fun, fun to talk about. But, but just tell me a few stories uh, that you include in your uh, talk about the Kentucky Derby. Well, one of the things I do is trace the origins of thoroughbred horse racing, and of course it goes back to England. Uh, the real impetus came with Charles II, who was a terrible, terrible mistake for the English uh, to restore him in 1660 because my family were Cromwellians <laughs> and because of that they got a one-way ticket to Virginia but that's another story and of course uh, Charles came in 1660 with a carte blanche he could do anything he wanted to do and what he wanted to do was have fun and he and his buddies had a lot of fun and one of the things they liked to do was to race horses and so they would go out uh, on a given day and race horses at what is no longer uh, the situation. They race them in heat races, and a horse might be required to run three, four, or five miles in any given race and do that as many as three times a day. Mm. Obviously, they were, weren't running full out. They were running with a measured uh, uh, speed set there at great distances and under great duress. And the word got out that the king and his boys were out there racing on the green, which in England is the downs. The word for green, a racing surface, is downs, hence all the terminology that carried over to America. And, of course, the king and his friends were racing, therefore it was the sport of kings. Mm. Eventually, 
they decided to show off and bring their lady friends there. And that changed the whole game, as many of us know that often is the case. And uh, what the, they did was they brought them to the racing spot. And of course, all the people that were racing uh, knew their horses. They didn't have to be told the horses, kind of like the fox hunter knows the sound of the dog and so on. But the women got there and they said, whose horse is that? And so to help identify that, they had been brought there by coachmen and so they told them they should adopt the coachman's colors. That it's the origins of jockey silks, of course. Hmm. And of course, the initial silks were very simple, black, white, green, the basic colors, but then as more and more stables were added, the multiple colors were added to the uh, mix. And then another thing happened. They were, I know this is hard to believe, they were betting on these races. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't fashionable for a gentleman. Were they legally betting on these races? Well, or it, it was sort I of... guess it was legal because he was the king. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I assume it was legal. But regardless, uh, in those days, it was not fashionable or really proper for a gentleman to exchange money with another gentleman. Therefore, you had to have someone keep record, keep mm. the book. Bookies. In, bookies, bookmakers, and so really? on. Really? Yeah. And then... And the, that's where... The, that's the that's, origin of, exact, of, of exactly, bookies. Exactly. Keeping book. Keeping bookies. book. Absolutely. Amazing. And then the other part of it was the women, being women as they are and fashionable as they were, said, you can't just hand money to somebody after the end of the race. You needed a fancy silk purse hmm. to be awarded, hence the terminology, the purse mm -hmm. and stakes stakes were bet mm -hmm. and some fellow would hang out over the finish line in a, a tree and as the jockey went by he would grab the purse and all of these traditions of course were carried later to america now the deviation there has to do with a fellow by the name of william whitley from garrett county of course and, and william whitley had experienced uh, uh, depredation from the british in the carolinas and when he got to kentucky he said, we don't need the English. And he set up a race course down in central Kentucky, and he immediately said, put a sign up. And the sign says, no one wearing English woolens is allowed on this property. <laughs> and the second thing was setting up the race course. He said, in England, they race counter, they race clockwise. We're going to race counterclockwise. Mm -hmm. And in England, we're going to race on the Dirt. Mm -hmm. And those were the traditions that changed uh, yeah. thoroughbred racing. And what year was that, approximately? Uh, that would have been after the uh, Revolution. Uh, okay. So, you somewhere know, around the turn of the century. Yeah, then. somewhere. Yeah. In there, yeah. And and um, where you said uh, Garrett, but where where was the racetrack? Uh, at a place called Sportsman's Hill. Yeah. In, in Central Kentucky. I don't, I don't know if it's uh -huh. Lincoln County or Garrett County. Uh -huh. so, yeah. I wonder if uh, how long it was there. That that's sort of curious. I've never heard that uh, story before. At least uh, through his life, and of uh -huh. course, there's the Whitley House down there. Yeah. There. So uh, okay. that is William Whitley, and that's what we uh, owe that tradition uh -huh. to. Uh -huh. And of course, in America, uh, turf racing did not become fashionable until more recent times. Was Churchill already uh, in Louisville at the time? No, Churchill was not uh, founded until 1875. Hmm. And that was, of course, by uh, William Clark, the grandson of uh, Clark of the Clark, uh, mm. Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm. And uh, he had been raised by his two uncles, 
whose names were Henry and Randolph Churchill. Hmm. And then when it came time, well, what happened was this. Uh, Clark decided, I know this is hard to believe, but there is a rivalry in Kentucky between Louisville and Lexington. Really? Yeah, really. That's, that's <laughs> true. And uh, Lexington, of course, was the center of thoroughbred racing prior to the Civil War. And many of the people in Lexington were somewhat sympathetic, uh, even participatory with mm-hmm. the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we all know the Confederacy lost. And Louisville was staunchly Union. And so there are two things at work here. Clark decided that he would move the capital of racing from Lexington to Louisville. He had gone to Europe and studied European racing, and he came back with the idea to pattern races after the classic English races, the St. Ledger, the 10,000 Guineas, and the Epson Oaks. And so the Clark Handicap eventually, and the Kentucky Oaks and the Kentucky Derby. So he leased Churchill farm way out in the countryside from his uncles Mm. and that was the origin of the uh, Churchill Downs uh, which Mm -hmm. was originally just one facility with two twin spires and they held the first Kentucky Derby on May 17th 1875 at a distance of a mile and a half Mm. which it continued to into the 1890s, and then they decided that was too long, long a mm-hmm. race for young horses, mm-hmm. and so they cut it down to a mile and a quarter. Mm-hmm. The first Derby was won not by the favorite, but by a horse called Aristides or Aristides, named after the famous mm-hmm. uh, Greek orator, and it was ridden by a black jockey by the name of Ali Lewis. Thirteen of the first fifteen jockeys were black, and the trainer was a black and the next trainer was also black, Mm -hmm. and the next trainer was also black. Hmm. Of the first 28 Kentucky Derbys, 15 were won by African-American jockeys. Now that is something that now, we we all know that uh, there have over time uh, been a number of African-American jockeys, but then there was also a period of time when, when they, did they more or less disappear? The pool dried up. In Kentucky, Unlike the Deep South, where slavery often dealt with cotton and cane fields and such as that, in Kentucky it dealt with horse farms. And there was a pool of fabulous black jockeys Mm -hmm. and black trainers who worked side by side with their masters, Mm -hmm. and some of them were free men as well. Mm -hmm. And that pool existed after the Civil War, and then it dried up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened was the size of the purses increased drastically, and therefore the blacks were frozen out. And it's rare for there to be a black jockey in the Derby today. Why do you think that uh, it's taken that long a time for black jockeys to come back into prominence? Well, because the white jockeys have been replaced by Latinos. Yeah. The Latinos dominate now. Mm-hmm. You hardly ever find a non-Latino mm-hmm. in the top 15 mm-hmm. jockeys. So Oliver Lewis, of course, there's a, a, a road here in Lexington named right. Oliver Lewis Way. That, that's named after that jockey. Uh, w- were there any other significant uh, black jockeys that... There were several. Yeah. <laughs> Isaac Murphy being the yes, most famous. Yes, of course. And that, that's he's also been lifted up here. Yeah. Uh, Frank Soup. X. Walker, I think, has written some poetry about him. Soup Perkins, James Soup Perkins, mm-hmm. Willie Sims, 
uh, it'd go uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy Winkfield. Yeah, yeah, Winkfield. And of course, Murphy is the greatest jockey of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won. He only rode in stakes races, and his winning percentage was sixty percent. That's like hitting six hundred in baseball. Mm-hmm. And of course, Bill, you probably know this. You being uh, Kentucky uh, personality and a historian of sorts yourself, though you weren't trained in history. I no, understand. not at all. Uh, in Kentucky, we dig them up. And so we dug up Isaac Murphy and moved him to the oh. horse park. And we dug up <laughs> Man of War and moved him to the horse park. Is that right? And we dug up Daniel Boone. Oh, yeah. Well, and I we dug up him. Zachary Taylor. Yeah. We dig them up. <laughs> <laughs> and move them where we want to put them. Exactly. And one more caveat that kind of goes along with my talk on Kentuckians is Simon Kenton is, of course, buried in Ohio in Urbana. And someday I'm quite certain we'll sneak up there and <laughs> bring him back. Bring him back where he belongs. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Jim, that, that's your uh, a lot of your Kentucky Derby um, uh, uh, talk, but you've got a couple others that you do uh, for Kentucky Humanities uh, from your from your book uh, that was uh, written in 2009, but has been in its third printing. I think it's uh, six now. Six printing. Yeah. Uh, called Rascals, Heroes, and Just Plain Uncommon Folks from Kentucky. Um, tell me just a little bit about that. You were telling me just about uh, a few of those characters, but these are really profiles of uh, some famous Kentuckians and maybe some that are not, aren't so famous. Yeah, several you would recognize and a great number even more you would not recognize not knowing that they are, you know, and the list is endless. But uh, you don't have to remake the wheel, Bill. Uh, I taught Kentucky history and I had a student come in one time. She was a teacher and she handed out a piece of paper and on that paper uh, were two or three lines describing something, and we used that. She played off of that for the report she was doing. Well, that's what I do. I hand out a piece of paper with two or three lines, and then the people, if they know it, they can identify them, but more often than not, they don't. An illustration of that, which would be kind of a local tie here, would be uh, uh, Robert, yes, Zerelda, or Frank and Jesse back from the bank. Mm. Well, of course, that's obviously... Yeah. James's. Uh-huh. And, of course, what's the connection in Kentucky? Well, Robert was a preacher in Georgetown, and Zerelda was a school teacher. <laughs> then they moved to Missouri. Yeah. And so it goes like that. Uh-huh. Well, these are these are really fascinating, and, and uh, I have to be honest with you uh, here on the podcast and tell you that I have not uh, seen your book before, but uh, there are certainly some well-known names. Um, in fact, I turn right to, to Christopher Gist. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm speaking to uh, that group, uh, the Society, uh, soon, and uh, that's interesting in itself. Um, so, um, of, and here's Helen Thomas. Oh, yes, from Winchester. And, of course, uh, she's passed away now, but we have just, whether or not this works out or not, but we've just had a, someone uh, uh, um, put in a submission f- uh, to play her in our Chautauqua performance. Great, uh, great. So, she would uh, be one of those, yeah. So Helen Thomas, uh, as I mentioned, uh, one of our, uh, possibly uh, one of our Chautauqua performers, if not this year, some other year. Did you know her? Uh, no, I didn't know her, but I followed her very closely. Of course, uh, she, she was a presence, no question about that. She was from Winchester, and uh, she got herself involved as uh, the person who always thanked the president, thank you, Mr. President, and often introduced the president. But unfortunately, she got into uh, some difficulties uh, two ways. First uh, was that uh, 
she got cross purposes with some of the presidents, and uh, she used to be called upon at all times. And they later found a seating chart of one of the presidents. I'll let him remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. And they had her name, and they had a big red X. (laughs) So she didn't get called upon it. And she also was now seated uh, in the back rather than in the front prominently. And the other thing that got her in trouble was uh, she spoke out against uh, Israel, uh, their attitude toward the Arabs. And that, that kind of put a cloud on it, though she was a fine writer and a mm-hmm. fine journalist. So mm-hmm. uh, that kind of falls into the rascal's hero as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. Um, interesting uh, lady. And I have to tell you, I used to follow that a lot closer than I do today. And I remember that she either got, she always got the first question. Is yes. that correct? I yeah. always called on the dean of the press corps. I'm not sure that tradition is still uh, in effect today at the White House. No, it isn't. But, you know, uh, Kentuckians have uh, used uh, the connection to the presidency uh, to great advantage of Diane Sawyer being another perfect oh, example, sure. yeah. uh, doing her, the flights with the candidates and such as that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, as long as we're talking about uh, uh, the media and, and the press, Julian Goodman, oh, yes. uh, last name as a relative uh, from uh, Glasgow, was president of NBC, president of NBC News and then NBC. And so he was there with Huntley Brinkley. Um, yeah. And uh, so a prominent uh, Kentuckian who was in, in Washington. Well, and, I, I, let me have a, give you a little story about Julian Goodman. Oh, fine. Uh, Julian, uh, I, I did meet him. And I also knew John Sherman Cooper uh, who, from your area as well. But um, Julian Goodman got the presidency of NBC. And he called his father up. And you may have heard this story. And his father, he said I to I have, us, but I, I want you to tell it. He, he said to his father, uh, Dad, uh, I have important news. Uh, I've just been elected president of one of the largest corporations in the world. And his father's response was, son, that's very good and it's interesting and fine. But he said, you can tell me about it later because today is Mule Day and i got to go to buy a mule. <laughs> that's which, right. Which is Kentuckiana uh, for sure. Of course sure. it is. That was, uh, that was Charlie. Uh, uh, we, we called him Uncle Charlie and that was his father and he was around a long time when I was growing up uh, in, in Glasgow. Uh, finally, Jim, um, you do uh, Songs of Kentucky Civil War. Uh, all of these presentations and a lot more uh, are available to you, uh, listeners, uh, through uh, Dr. Claypool. But Songs of the Kentucky Civil War, tell us a little bit about uh, that talk. Well, what I try to do there is uh, when I founded the archives at NKU, one of the first donations was uh, from uh, Warren Schonert, a journalist from Falmouth. He was also on the Board of Regents. And he had this fabulous historical collection, which if you're up there, Bill, I hope you get a chance to see it. It's in mm-hmm. the archives. He had a full signature collection of every president of the United States, as well as a huge Civil War collection from Parable. And uh, I wanted to do a presentation. Uh, I've been involved in television and such as that. And so in presenting that, I wanted to present both sides, songs from the South and songs from the North, uh, to highlight the various things we were showing. Well, then later, when I decided to do this talk, I thought I would try to balance the songs of the South and the songs of the North. And it's a lot of fun because several of them use the same melodies, Hmm. but words respective mm-hmm. of their particular point of view. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the ways I, I went with that. The other th- uh, musical talks I do, I do ballads. 
I do uh, sites in Kentucky. I take them for a journey uh, heading from northern Kentucky all the way down and through Kentucky. And then the funniest thing happened. It suddenly occurred to me that of all the different things I did with Kentucky music, the thing I was overlooking was bluegrass music. Mm. And at the time, I knew very little about bluegrass music, but I decided to have a program involving bluegrass music and to learn about bluegrass music. And in the process, I got to meet many of the contemporary uh, bluegrass musicians, as well as uh, I ended up writing a book about Kentucky's bluegrass music. So it, it, everything is evolutionary. Dr. Claypool, you've had a fascinating and interesting life, haven't you? Yes, I have. And, uh, you know, um, I always say this to my students. What you do in life is you find out what you do very, very well. And you do that as often as you possibly can. And what you also do is avoid anything you do poorly like the bubonic plague. <laughs> my students would look at me and say, well, give me an example. And i say, well, never and this is, doesn't mean to be a pejorative thing, never challenged a Chinaman to a ping-pong match because <laughs> you're not going to win. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dr. Claypool, thank you uh, for coming in today and talking with us. Uh, we appreciate uh, your love of uh, history and, and your love of Kentucky and your lifetime of service, uh, and uh, we're so proud to have you in our Speakers Bureau. Well, thank you, Bill, and uh, the same could be said for you for the, your career. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities. Humanities.